0: So
1: we have the upcoming holiday of Shavuos, uh, when we celebrate the receiving of the Torah, the getting of the Torah. Uh, as to what exactly did we get is a little bit of a misconception, because we got the Torah, but what, what does that include? So typically we think of the Torah, uh, how do we define Torah?
0: Everything.
1: Everything, but do we get everything at Mount Sinai?
0: No. Huh? That some we
1: no, we, we did not even get the tablets. That's no, no, the thing.
0: No. On Shavu we got it orally. The, the, the Ten Commandments orally, or the first two, or the first letter, depending on who
1: you read. Okay, so 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 so, so it's not so clear. Now it's labeled as the holiday of getting the Torah. Zman matan Torah tenu. That's what the holiday is called. As to what is that we got, it's a little bit unclear. Now. Typically, we think of the Torah when you just say the word the Torah. Most people conjure an image of scrolls. In Judaism, that's an incorrect image. No, not, not that's it. That's not Torah. But the simplest understanding of Torah is not just a physical document. Rather, it's an ideology. It's a way of life. Torah means instruction. I know we've said this a thousand times, but Torah means instruction. If you actually look at the written document, the instructions, they are not complete. And it's obvious to anyone who reads it. That's why we need all the commentaries to explain what's going on. We need the oral Torah to explain. We need the Medras to explain. We need Rashi and the Ramban and all the voluminous commentaries that we have to really give us clarity as to what it it is we're reading. Because the words in the document are obscured. The true meaning is hidden. So when we say Torah, we're referring to to much more than a written document, it's a written document merged with the oral understanding of that document as well, which we call Torah collectively, so written that would Torah.
0: Joseph and, and anybody up until now.
1: Perhaps yes, that's why that's, uh, halacha would be under the realm of, of of Torah. Now, not only that, we have a little bit of a of a of, a, of an upside down way of understanding. And I'll explain what I mean here, just to clarify. We think of the relationship of written torah and oral torah. H- how do they relate? Well, we have a written torah. Well, what does it mean? Well, what does it mean when, you know it says that uh, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Like. Well, so we have to go to, to understand the written torah. we have to go to the oral torah. Yes. That's the way we think. And the, you know, Torah is very uh, sometimes it's a very ambiguous. You have statements like... Uh, slaughter cows or slaughter food the way I instructed you. So, how do you understand what it means? How do we make an animal kosher by, by killing it? Well, to understand that, we have to go to the oral Torah. And so on and so forth. Everything that we have in the written Torah, we have to say, okay, how do we understand that by going to the oral Torah? So, the
0: written Torah is just an
1: outline. I'm sorry? So
0: the Torah is like an outline? Well, let's
1: not jump to any conclusions. That's what we think. But in truth, it's, it's, it's almost the exact opposite. The Jewish people did not get a written document until all the way at the end of Moshe's life. When Moshe's about to die, he takes 13 da scrolls, gives one to each tribe, has a 13th scroll, right? 12 tribes, 12 scrolls. A 13th scroll is kept in the Ark. And these are the scrolls that are used to copy and make other scrolls. So if you want to write a Torah scroll, we know to write a Torah scroll, you have to take an existing Torah scroll and copy it. You can't go to a Chumash. You can't it by heart. You can't go from the internet. You take an existing Torah scroll and copy it word for word. So these were the foundational scrolls of each tribe that they would copy all their Torahs from. But if Moshe gave us the Torah, Torah it's called Torah's Moshe, because Moshe is the channel that gives us the Torah. Yet Moshe didn't give us a written document until the week of his death. So what was Moshe teaching us? He was teaching us Torah in a, in an oral format, and that indeed is the is the uh, the I guess the, the the better way of understanding Torah is not by going to the written document. It's indeed going to the oral corpus of understanding. And uh, to answer Anne's question, so if so, if the oral Torah is central. What's the role of the written Torah? It's the outline. It's the outline. Very good. And it's the safety guard. Because the oral Torah is fluid. You teach it from teacher to student, from parent to child, from generation to generation. The nature of that form of instruction is that there can be divergent understandings. There can be mistakes. I heard it this way, I heard it that way. The oral Torah is a safety guard to make sure no mistakes fall into the tradition. This is a very subtle point, and most people don't know this. This is a secret. The written Torah is there to make sure that your oral tradition that you have, from your teacher, from your parent, from the previous generation, did not get corrupted. So if you look at the Talmud, the Talmud says, This rabbi said X, and this rabbi said Y. And they ask a question, the question from a verse, how does your your tradition fit in, how do you deduce it from the verse? We kind of work backwards. We start from the oral Torah, and we work backwards to say, okay, how does that fit in to the fixed written Torah?
0: So is the written Torah the source of the oral Torah? Like, okay, like you said... Where did it come from? And
1: then you go, okay, let me look at the source, and then they go to the written Torah. Is that what it is? The source of it is God. That's the source. Now, the written Torah and oral Torah are mirrors of each other. They both contain the same content. The difference between the content is, is, is not in the content itself. Rather, it's in the way that the content is presented. So, oral Torah breaks it down two ways that are easier to understand. So we have the Mishnah, which is the laws. We have the Talmud, which is how the laws are sourced back in the verses. And all the methods of derivation, the, the 13 methods of derivation. Plus all the categories and all the other applications of the law and all the exceptions to the law and all the reasonings behind the law. And then there's the next realm which of the Oral Torah, which is the Halakha, which is, okay, practical, what do I do as a Jew? All those are kind of ways that we relate to information. What are the rules? What are the categories? What are the subcategories? Break it down for me. What do I need to do? When is it applicable? When is it not applicable? What about in this case? What about in that case? That is one element of Torah in its revealed form. That same information is contained in the written Torah as well. The problem is, if you just read the written Torah, you would have absolutely no idea how to deduce that. And Torah together is, when we talk about Torah, it's everything. It's understanding it all, both written and oral, and how they interrelate. And how you could get every oral law, you can trace it back to the written Torah, how it fits in, right? put the jigsaw pieces together, and every written Torah word, can be extrapolated out into its practical application in the form of the Oral Torah. So that's why studying Talmud is fascinating, because we're dancing back and forth, weaving our way from written Torah. Well, how does that translate back? You know, kind of taking this process all the way from a written rigid document, rigid words and saying, well, this letter means this, and this letter means that, and that letter means that, and this word has another parallel elsewhere, and thus we transplant laws back and forth. It's just, it's, it's it's a dizzying maze almost, where we have one sentence, and we take that sentence and chop it up into 500 little pieces, and each piece is telling you a different message. And then words are bunched together, and then justification of which word was placed where, which word came first which word came second where else in the whole torah does that same word appear so once those two words appear together it creates a link between the two of them and transferring laws back and forth there's hundreds of examples of that and by the way to the point to the discussion that we were having last week if anyone could even fathom writing this i say if anyone reads the oral torah reads the talmud and sees just the interrelationship of every word of the Torah with the whole scope of the rest of the Torah, and understanding every letter and how it fits into this grand scheme, and how we take one verse and really just amplify it in the form of the oral Torah to see exactly what the hidden message is. It's not possible for someone to make that up. It's not. No one can be that clever to hide arcane references and hints of words up across uh, uh, thousands of different uh, sentences. And it says this word here, and it says that word there, and these words are connected or these words are not connected, or there's a general principle and then a limiting principle and then a general principle, and that teaches you x, but then it has something else that teaches you y, and then you have to have a third. it's it's dizzyingly complex. but but when you open up the oral torah, suddenly you're like, you see this whole mosaic, this tapestry, some of the written Torah is unlocked right before your very eyes. And you look at the written Torah and then suddenly it has a different meaning. Suddenly like, wow, this message and this depth and this subtleties and this hints and all that is right there. And those two together give us an understanding of what God really wants from us. He wants us to study. He wants us to break our heads over it. He wants us to be confounded. He doesn't want us to be fed a silver spoon. But he also wants us to know what to do. So we have a kind of all together. We have the appreciation of the infinite wisdom of, of, of the author. You know, and just, just, the, the, just the more you delve into Torah, the more you realize how much there is there. You know, I always say it's ironic that kids in America, once they did their bar mitzvah training in their Sunday school, in Jew jail, as it's called by someone, once they're done with that, they're bona fide experts. They've done it. Like, like don't, you know, I'm, now, I'm moving on to the next chapter of my life because I completed it. I got my confirmation. I'm done. When, ironically, they haven't even started. You know, how many books of the, 30, 63 books of the Talmud have you read? Or even know the names of it? You know? How deep have you gone into the laws of I don't know, uh, agricultural laws. You can spend your whole life studying that. We know that some, there was a, uh, there was a scholar in Israel who spent 10 years learning the laws of Aholos. Of
0: what?
1: Aholos. Anyone knows what Aholos is? Like tents. Okay. What does it mean? What the laws of tents, how to pitch a tent? So Ahalos is one of the most difficult parts of the Talmud. You guys have even heard of it, right? It deals with the laws of contamination in an enclosure. So a uh, ohel, a tent is an enclosure. And there's it creates like this singular domain of everything that's within the same enclosure is unified by this enclosure. And thus if you drop something in there and that has it gives off contamination that affects everyone in that in the vicinity. Not only that, if you have a vessel, that vessel creates an enclosure. Stuff that are dropped into the vessel, stuff that touch the vessel, the inside, the outside. Very complex laws. So this rabbi spent ten years of his life studying it and writing a book of it. I don't know. What I'm saying I don't know. I haven't met maybe even a dozen Americans that have even studied this book, much less you know delve into it. But there's there's so much. You know, ha, ha, Every kind of little topic, there's a guy in our neighborhood, young guy, he's in this He's maybe 25, and he wrote a nice little book about the biblical borders of Israel. What do you mean, Israel? We know what the borders are. Well, right now, today, by the way, is the anniversary, the 49th anniversary of the capture or or the recapture of the Old City of Jerusalem on day three of the Six-Day War. That's today, June, June 7th. Right? So the map changed, right? But mm-hmm. there's this whole question of when, where was Biblical Israel? Because Biblical Israel was on both sides of the Jordan. From was it taller? Nile, or was please. it shorter? What about Sinai? How far does it go into Sinai? Where exactly is the borders? Because we know like, there's a lot of consequences as to where you determine the borders of Israel. Because there are a lot of agricultural laws that are only applicable in the land of Israel. So where, where does the land begin? Where does it end? From
0: the Nile to the Tiber. Okay. Uh,
1: I don't know. Is that pretty big? That's a lot bigger than our current state of Israel.
0: Malta agreement map of Israel when it was first created. Well, there's multiple that is nothing like what it is now. Yeah. Well, there was the Peel
1: Commission, the Peel Commission in 1937. Uh, there was uh, the partition plan in 1947. Mm-hmm. Of course, none of the agreements that had a state of Israel on the map was agreed to by any of the Arabs. So. So, if you, you know, so, but, but like, we have that kind of historically, where Joshua had the initial conquest, and there was multiple additional conquests, and where exactly does the border end, and where does it begin? So, like, that's, that's a, an esoteric topic. Like, if you were to say, list me a 5,000 most important topics in Judaism, from 1 to 5,000, would it make the list? It might! I'm saying, but there are people that spend a, lot, a long time like studying these little niche subjects because there's so much out there. You know, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you guys something personally. I spent uh, several years studying the laws of a pursuer, a rodif. The Gemara says, halacha is, that if you see someone pursuing someone else to try to, 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 to either kill them or to, or to rape them, you have an obligation to save the victim. Even if it means killing the aggressor, you gotta stop him. First, you gotta first you shoot for the knees to stop them. you can't, shoot for the kill. That's the halacha. Simple, straightforward, right? Right.
2: <laughs> so I have,
1: I have, a, I have a booklet. Maybe I should have brought here for you of like twenty essays that I wrote on this subject. All the various halachic discussions, you know. Um, Like for example, I'll give you one here. Um, What is the status of a of a of a fetus that's trying to injure the mom? Is that considered a pursuer? It's a big question because the baby, even though it's it's unintentional, but the baby is like a pursuer after the mom. Or another case, what about if you have an informer? An informer who an informer who is going to inform on the uh, on someone 's activities to the authorities, so for example he 's going to say oh he 's going to go over to the local magistrate and tell him, "See this Jewish guy He looks like kind of tattered right he looks like a schlamazel, as we say in yiddish mm-hmm. he 's really a millionaire, so you 're informing and then they 're going to come and say, "Okay, pay taxes or uh, okay, give us half your money or else we you know or else we put we put you down so the law is that an informer is considered. Like a pursuer. So what's that? How does that work? What are the rules? What are the categories? What are the sources? All those questions, you know. It's really fascinating.
0: Maybe he's going to tell that they're getting a circumcision or that they're going in the mikvah or something like any, any
1: kind of, even the Gemara says, even if it's an informer for money. There's a great story and they're going to tell about, in the Talmud Baba Kamba that tells about Rav Kahana. Rav Kahana was one of the greatest rabbis that we've had in, uh, in Jewish history in the second century. So he was in Babylon, and there was a gentleman that threatened to inform the government about a collection of wheat, of grain that some guy had. I need to tell them oh, they have some grain that would seize the grain. So that's that's a pursuer. So the guy said, "Don't do it. Don't inform." He's like, "I'm going go to go inform. Don't inform. I'm going to do it anyhow." So he kind of took a stick and killed the guy because that's the Halakha. No, you have a dead body here. What are you going to do?
0: He didn't do anything.
1: Well, okay, so that's a good question. You're asking a good question. So that's why we have to do, understand the story.
2: It depends if there were two, it depends if there are two there witnesses who no, saw so killed. Him. Well,
1: okay, but he's a pursuer. Yeah. But what, yeah, like a question, a that's a good question. That's exactly the question that I would ask in my essays. When does someone become a pursuer? What do they have to demonstrate? What are the rules? Does he have to actually be pursuing? Does he have a friend to be pursuing? Does he hint to be pursuing? If he pursued once, maybe he'll pursue again? A lot of very interesting questions. And really getting deep, deep, deep into the subject. Either way, they have a dead body. To finish the story, they have a dead body on the floor. And Rav, who was Rav Kahana's colleague and mentor, he told him, okay, you did the right thing. That was the correct thing uh, as per the halacha to do. However... You have to escape, because if the authorities find out that you killed the guy, they'll put you down as well. So the Talmud tells this whole saga of Rav Kahana's trip back east. He was in Babylon, he went back to Israel. Either way, this is all to say that any niche in Torah, any verse in Torah, certainly any page of Talmud, we could probably spend... Hours and hours and hours, certainly days, maybe even weeks and months, studying intently, deeply, and finding insights and finding uh, nuances and really developing ideas and really coming up with tremendous insights. Because that's what the Torah is. The Torah is God's mind, and it's, it has it all wrapped up together, the written Torah, the oral Torah together, and there's so much wisdom to go further and further. So I want to ask
2: the same question you asked go ahead. You started. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what do we
1: get on Shavuot? I still don't know the answer. Well, that's a good question. We're celebrating the... I wasn't going to get that to a point. Thank you for bringing me back. So what do we get on Shavuot? And, you know, and I... I'm saying... So, yeah, we got the Ten Commandments. Oral. Ten mitzvahs. What percentage of... Well, it's oral, that's right, because the Moshe only came with the tablets uh, a month and a half later. But what's so special about well, these are ten mitzvahs? It's 3% of the 613 mitzvahs? Mm-hmm.
0: But... Covers a lot of them, at least in general. First okay,
1: maybe they're important. I'm, I'm saying it's undeniable that these are very important mitzvahs, but why would getting 10 mitzvahs, or 3% of the totality of mitzvahs, of instructions of the Torah, why would that qualify that re, re, you know, receipt of, of, of that instructions to be, we got the Torah. Maybe we got some of the Torah. Should we say this is the holiday of receiving of some of the Torah?
0: But, but Rabbi, Go ahead. I read a commentary yesterday or the day before. Go ahead. It said that Hashem said something, and it was, and he said everything, even all the stuff up until now, all at once, so that we heard the sound, but we didn't get all the separate sentences. But at least we heard it all.
1: Okay, so I'm going to say, when say two variants of your idea.
0: So in Shabbat, it's so important because that's when Hashem spoke to us.
1: Okay, so I like where you're going like that. So we all,
0: we, It's not one person that he talked to. He talked to it's, all of us. Yes.
1: Okay, so let's try to unpack this idea I here.
0: Agree.
1: Let's unpack this idea. So let's, let's start with kind of the, the simplest, I think the simplest way to do it. So the Talmud tells us that if you look at the Ten Commandments, you actually find a condensed version of all of Torah. Mm-hmm. And in fact there's a prayer that we say on the holiday, composed by Rabbi Sa'ad wherein he delineates all the categories of, uh, or, or, or all these ten categories into, he breaks down to the mitzvahs that fall into each one of these ten categories. But he does it in a very poetic fashion, so it's not so easy to pick out what he's saying. But let me tell you this idea. The Talmud tells us that the Almighty said the first two of the Ten Commandments Himself, and then the rest of the eight commandments he said via Moshe, so he used Moshe as, in, as an intermediary. Now, why would the Almighty give us two mitzvahs Himself and eight via Moshe? Because
2: everybody died when he when he said it.
1: But did they die after one or after?
0: After each one, they were yeah. resurrected. Yeah. They died and again. The they were resurrected. Yes.
1: Okay, but let me ask you a question. So why would they not stop after once? Imagine if I told you something, or God told you something, and you died. Wouldn't you say, I'm not trying that again? you brought back to life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't we know about
2: that. Mm-hmm.
0: But
1: why? But, so if, if the Almighty insists on giving it to us Himself, let Him give, give us all ten Himself.
0: People the two are very person it. the two are, you know, know, like the, the two is I, I, is, is me so you okay. want to make sure that you guys understand that it's, it comes from me
2: oh
0: and, and um, those okay, two I'm sorry, it comes from me, but it's I, it's I exactly, yeah. so there's a Marsha, the commentary <laughs> the
1: commentary, the, the Marsha on, on this Talmud where it talks about the two versus the eight he says like this, he says if you look at all of Torah, it's included in the first two of the Ten Commandments. Every mitzvah that we do, why would you do a mitzvah? What's the, what's the only reason why you would do a mitzvah? Because Hashem told you. And why would you refrain from sinning? Because Hashem told you not to do that. So what happens when someone sins? What are they essentially telling God? God, you said I shouldn't do this. I'm doing it anyhow.
0: I don't care
1: what you have to say. Exactly. And what does that sound like? That's idolatry. We are taking something and putting it on on a higher priority than God. Mm -hmm. We're saying, oh God, you say this. Hmm, I have a better idea. I'll do something else. What? How could you do that? Right? That's, That's a rejection of God. So every one of the 365 sins has an element of idolatry in it. And every one of the 248 positive mitzvahs, mitzvahs that were instructed to do something, really echoes of faith. And by the way, faith and rejection of idolatry is also one idea if you actually break it down. right, It's a positive and negative of the same coin. But essentially, the Almighty gave us all of Torah. Certainly with the Ten Commandments, but even with the first two. The very first two commandments, we got all of Torah. Now, indeed, it's a very densely concentrated version of Torah. Because it's only two mitzvahs. But these mitzvahs are more than just isolated mitzvahs. They're principles that apply in 611 other ways. So when you're doing a mitzvah, every mitzvah that you're doing, at its root, is about faith. And every mitzvah that you refrain from doing, it's also about faith, but just a, 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 you know the negative side, or rejecting, rejecting the negative of faith, the opposite of faith. Now, I want to show you guys something very cool. The last of the Ten Commandments, so there's two of the Ten Commandments that are intellectual mitzvahs. The first one, of course, is believe in God. And the last one, is thou shalt not covet now if you um, if you actually understand the midst of thou shall not covet, it seems like it's really asking of us something that's beyond our capacity to fulfill, right if, you know <coughs> thou shalt not covet it doesn't mean thou shalt not take actions to try to get your neighbors. Uh, wife, his house, his car, his donkey, his ox. That's not what... To covet means to desire it, even if you don't actually try to get it. And that's one of the 613 mitzvahs. One of the 613 mitzvahs is, I shouldn't even want what my neighbor has. And that seems like it's a little bit too demanding of us, no? Isn't it hard to fulfill... Means I, de- I have my desires. My neighbor has a nice house, he's got a nice wife, he's got a nice donkey, he's got a nice. Right, these are the examples that the Torah gives. And he's got a nice uh, ox, right? He has a nice car, probably would say. like, How could I not see his fancy car parked so sleekly or his opulent house and not even desire it? How is that a reasonable expectation? If the Torah said, hey, Listen, your neighbor has his stuff, you have your stuff, don't, don't take him. Don't try to deliberately damage it, don't try to steal it. That seems like a, like a reasonable request. To say I shouldn't even desire it, that seems a little bit difficult. So listen to what the Ibn Ezra says. The Ibn Ezra says as follows. He gives us a parable. And he says that imagine you have a, a peasant an uneducated peasant. And he is of sound mind. But he realizes he is at the very bottom of the uh, social strata. He's a nobody. His dad was a nobody. His kids will be nobodies. That's just the way it is, right? He's not really rising from his, uh, his social setting. And then he sees the princess, the daughter of the king. Beautiful, right? With all the guards and all the kit and caboodle, the uh, cavalcade. If he is of sound mind, he doesn't even desire her. Because he knows she is out of his league. She's beyond anything, he can even, even dream in his wildest fantasies of ever getting hold of. Says the Ibn Esar, if God tells you, that your friend's wife is his and the Almighty gave it to him and not to you, then it's much more removed from you. It's much more removed from you than just the fact that you're in a different social strata than the princess. It means that there's, there's a certain natural way, a formula that you could do to curb your desire to covet something else. If there's something, if you know for sure something is not obtainable, like we'd all love maybe to fly around like birds, right? How come we don't sit and say, oh my gosh, I wish I could fly like a bird? We see birds flying all the time. Why why don't we say, oh my gosh.
0: Well I think man has. That's why we have airplanes we yeah, but, and helicopters. Nah. Yeah, but hang lighters. Yeah. Fair, things. fair.
1: But I'm saying I want to do it like birds do it. Well, we're not. How like can, birds. Well, exactly. The point is is that we recognize that this is not something that's in any way obtainable, and therefore we don't even f- fantasize about it. So maybe we kind of do a little bit, so you're right a little bit. But for a nice Jewish boy, right? I'll give you another example. So,
2: so what if you and your neighbor have the same economic status? You can both afford the same things. He gets a new car. You really like that car. You can go out and buy one. Is it okay to want that car? Not his, but the same model. I
1: think that I think that would that would that would be okay. Um, that would be okay. But it's less that so you can't buy it, or you don't want to buy it. But you still look at him with you know you still kind of have a little uh, yeah, I don't desire. I just want to go to the dealer and get one like
2: this. Yeah, it's oh, it's wow, that car! Cool. Oh
1: my gosh, I love that! Oh my, look at that car! Right, that is prohibited by Torah law, which is which is really it's, it's, it's incredible. Says the There's a formula. There's a way we could do it to curb that desire. If we realize that that's out of our lead because God gave it to him and God has a plan for me and a plan for him and me having that car or that wife or that house or that donkey or all the examples that are given, that's not part of the plan. So it's easier like with his wife, right? You know, I kind of like, uh, yeah, you can't afford it. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> right, So, there's no way I could do it because the Almighty said, you know, I have a wife for you, and I have a, you know, I have a partner for you in life, and be happy with what you have, and you know that this was given to your neighbor. That will actually curb desire. But what does that mean? Yeah, but
2: certain desires are good. Okay. drives you to, uh, to achieve more.
1: That's right, and we're even told. We're, we're even so told. Best,
2: you know, you speak of which is out of control. Of
1: well, okay. So I'll tell you the the torah tells us not to desire not to covet my neighbor's uh spouse or anything physical items but his my his his good midos, his good character or his scholarship or his mitzvahs that I'm actually encouraged to covet in fact we're told Kena sofrim tar the envy of scribes of authors will increase wisdom if i see a guy who sat next to me in shul. And this guy wrote a book on Torah. And I say, if this guy could do it, I could do twice as good. So that's envy. But that is a good envy because that's going to propel me to push myself a little harder. So there's a good kind of envy, and then there's an envy which is a bad kind. And I would say perhaps the breakdown is physical, material versus spiritual. His physical, material assets that is not a healthy thing for me to covet. However, his spiritual obtainments, his life challenges, his accomplishments, his hard work, his perseverance, his tenacity, those are things that I should copy. If I see my neighbor I'm getting up early and, and putting in the long hours, and I'm a loafer, and I say, I want to be like him, that's a good thing. But to say, oh, I, want to have, I just want to have what he has, that's not, that's not, that's, that's not healthy.
0: If you acquire all those good qualities, it takes nothing away from him. He still has them anyway.
1: But what do we see? The Torah is demanding of me in this last of the Ten Commandments, to not only have the basic faith of commandment number one: believe in God, don't do any idolatry. it demands that the faith penetrates my assumptions. It penetrates my desires. It changes the things that I don't even think I have control over. You know, a man, a man desires, right? But is it possible for him to tinker with that? If they have absolute faith and they have the absolute recognition that God gives me what I need, it gives my fellow, my neighbor what he needs, and I know that this is his and, that's not, and it's not mine, and the Almighty is there making sure that we can each maximize our life and our opportunities and achieve our own levels of perfection and greatness with what we were given, if I really realize that, I won't even desire what he has. Indeed, desire and lust is not blind. It's possible to tinker with that, but it demands that that commandment number one, I believe in God, actually transforms me internally. It actually changes who I am, it becomes real, it becomes tangible. It becomes palpable, becomes something which is not just an idea that like, if you ask me about it, oh yeah, I'll think about it, but it's something which accompanies me my whole life. It changes my assumptions. And indeed, if you look at the beginning and the end of the Ten Commandments, you actually are given a whole picture. So yes, there's ten mitzvahs, right? but these mitzvahs really are the beginnings of our journey into spiritual greatness. We recognize the idea of a God. It's the beginning. It's the foundation. It's the baseline. It's ground zero of our spiritual structure. And what's the end point? What's the end goal? Where the faith in God is not just an idea, it's actually pounding my heart from within. It actually colors my lenses on the world. It changes my desires. It changes my reality. It supplants the, the reality that was there prior and transforms it into another reality. I see the world differently. When I see my neighbor having something, I don't even think to have envy. I'm just, this is what the Almighty gave him. And there's nothing I can do to change that. And there's nothing that he has that in any way infringes upon me. The Talmud makes it very clear. It's not possible for me to change what the Almighty wants to give someone else. Even, that's what it says, even the, a hair's breadth, right? How, how thick is a hair? Not so thick. What is it, a half, a tenth of a millimeter? I can't even encroach that little bit on my fellow, and he cannot encroach upon me. But to really believe that, it demands a life of growth and change, and introspection and reflection and pondering, and growing, and mitzvahs, because the mitzvahs are there to get us there. Like you, The mitzvahs are there to bridge the gap between commandment number one and commandment number ten. You have a mezuzah, it's a mitzvah that every Jew does. Jews that are distant from Judaism do a mitzvah. What's the idea behind a mezuzah? Every time I walk through a door, something I do hundreds, if not thousands of times a day, I remember God. You know, there's a tradition people do, they kiss the mezuzah. You see that, ever? Mm-hmm. So my teacher, my rabbi, he wouldn't kiss the mezuzah. But every time he passed the mezuzah, he'd put his hand in it and stop for a se- for one second. One se- second, probably, is a long time. A very long time. For one second, just stop and touch mezuzah and think. The Almighty is here, he's watching over me, he created me. I'm alive, thanks to him. I'm thankful that I'm up and I'm awake and I, I have vision and I can hear and I can walk and I have a community, and he gave me food. By the way, you know what would happen if the Almighty stopped giving us food? If the miracle of agriculture would stop for one season, everything and everyone that you know would be dead. Besides the people that stock up uh, on corn, the Y2K people, the survivalists, the guys that have underground bunkers and 10,000 cans of corn. Besides for those people, we're all dead. That way, uh, yeah. people right. that, that that buy uh, food insurance. Right. So, okay, but my point is, is that we are all living. It's all a miracle. I'll, I'll explain to you this, and, and you guys, I want I want to, I want to hear someone arguing with me. When you drop a seed into the ground, hmm? you drop a seed into the ground, and you cover it with soil, and you start planting it with a little water, <laughs> and it has sufficient sunlight, and then you stop. Freeze the tape. And you have to dig it up. And you say, okay, what do we have over here? We have a seed, which is totally inedible. We're surrounded by soil, which is inedible. And it starts to rot and decay and decompose. And it becomes nasty. And little streams of, uh, of, of corrosion, of, uh, you know, of decay are emerging from it. If I stop there right now and say, what's going on here? If I took someone who never knew anything about agriculture, they would say, oh yeah, it's so sad. This was once a fruit. But look at it now. It's dying. It's dead. It's falling apart. It's decaying. It's it's starting to have a putrid reality to it. And then lo and behold, you put it back in there. You wait a few more months, something comes out. Something's going down south and something's going up north, right? The, the roots are getting deeper and something emerging. How does that even happen? Does anyone even know? Can anyone explain to me here how I put a seed which is inedible into ground which is inedible, I give it some oxygen, some light, some water, and I have fruits that are edible. Can anyone explain to me how that works? Huh? The answer, I even Googled this recently. Like, there is no really scientific understanding of how this even works. Where all of us are living on miracles. Because if this stops happening, you know what you'll say? Huh, it's okay, I don't need fruits, I'll, I'll eat meat. I'll just eat meat. Exactly, exactly. So this one miracle that none of us really know, we, no, no one knows how this even works how is it possible? What's going on over here? It's it's all a miracle. We're all alive because of that miracle. And just thinking about that for a second, like how all of humanity—if if for one second, or oh, not one second, for one season God said, "You know what? Let me stop. Let me pull back on this miracle and see if humanity."
0: Have a whole
1: year where you're not in Israel. Okay, that's true, but we only—that's only in Israel. That's fair. But maybe that's the lesson. When you stop doing it, then you realize what it is. You realize what the value is. But like, that is what faith is. Faith is dropping a scene into the ground and believing on this reality. Trevor, You're believing, you're behaving in a way that demonstrates that you believe that there's something invisible at play here. There's a reality that you cannot see. It's unexplainable, but it is here. And it is going to give you food. That's faith. And the whole world relies upon it. But By the way, I'll tell you something cool. You know what the Talmud says? Just to bring this full circle. The Talmud says that the section of Talmud, talking about itself, that refers to agriculture, is called Emuna, faith. It's as if, if you look at all the people you could be, you could be a policeman, you could be a firefighter, you could be a farmer, you could be a rabbi. Who has the most faith? The farmer. Because farming is an act of faith. Because you are doing something based upon a reality that is invisible. That is what faith is. We are behaving in a way, in a reality, based upon something that is invisible. And you know what? It's invisible, but we have all these reminders. We have a mezuzah at our door. We have prayers in the morning, afternoon, and evening. We have even prayers in bed, where you go to sleep and when you wake up. We study Torah every day. These are all reminders of this invisible reality that's real, that's true, and that the entire world relies upon. And that is the progression, where faith starts off as an idea that yeah, it's, it's something we can argue about. We have the creationists, and we have the evolutionists, and we have the atheists, and we have the agnostics, and the believe. Everyone wants to say what they want to say about it, and that's how we start off. with say, "Well, we have evidence, and we have copious evidence, and Abraham proved it, and you know, science already is making their way around to it that there was a beginning, right? That's already an idea that's accepted by everyone. That's how we start off, but that's not the goal." Is the goal of Jewish life to have a perfunctory faith? Yeah, I believe in it. If you want me to measure and evaluate the evidence, well, which one is more likely? Is it likelier that we had a creator, an intelligent creator, that created uh, the world we have? Or is it likelier that within four billion years, spontaneously, we got DNA and cells and amino acids and proteins and a trillion different distinct organisms. Is that, you tell me, just walk me through. How, how are we getting an earth that's only 4.6 billion years old? It starts off as being inanimate, and within 4.6 billion years, not only do you create a single amoeba, which by the way is a simple, a simple organism, but if you were to collect the Collected wisdom and capabilities of all of mankind, we couldn't create a single cell. We couldn't do it. Because a single cell is comprised of trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions, 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 trillions of different atoms. You know how to make an atom? Anyone knows know how to make an atom? Could, make atom? could you make one atom? Could you make one subatomic part? Give me one electron. Make me one electron. Make me one. Could you do that? You can't. If we try to make an electron, we can't do it. Now, to make a cell, you know how many electrons you need? How many protons you need? How much balance you need? How much infrastructure you need? How much detail and precision and subtleties and nuances and incredible infrastructure exists within a single cell? You know, a single human cell contains the entire human genome. We're talking about 3 billion pairs of protein bases. three billion in a single cell. Yeah, it's like a single cell. It's like a simple organism. And that's we have no idea. We can't create a single cell. Much less a trillion different organisms, some of them comprised of many, 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 many different kinds of cells, and functioning and working in, in a human brain and fingers that bend and a liver that filters. Like, look, we, have no, we have no idea how to even do that. It's, it's a miracle. Amazing. It's but, it's all. It's a miracle.
0: But Hashem is amazing too.
1: He was always here. How how did that? Happen? Okay, so that you know, but that's a good question. Um, but the problem, there's a problem. There's a fundamental problem with asking that question. The problem is, is that you're using our our terms, so to speak, our definitions. To try to means using like finite world definitions to try to understand the infinite entity. Thus, you're using tools and measuring sticks of a finite world and saying, okay, the parallel world, the infinite world, it should be governed by the same rules that our world is governed. Thus, your question has is, is a good question. But if we recognize that this alternative world does not play by the same rules, so thus God is. Simultaneously existing in the past, the present, and the future. By the way, that's God's name. The name that we're not allowed to pronounce. But once you recognize that the rules don't apply, you can ask the question well, what happened beforehand? Because there was no beforehand. Mm-hmm. Time as a linear entity, right, that we cannot undo the past, right, that is a function of our world, Do and thus know? our perspective. Do
0: you remember wondering that when you were three
1: years old? No, I don't remember much about being three. I could ask my three-year-old, see what he says about it. But either way, like this, when you read the Ten Commandments, in kind of its more holistic version, not only do you get all of mitzvahs, and all 613 mitzvahs, but you really get the ideas... The, the transformation that are the intent of the mitzvahs? What's the goal of the mitzvah? What's the transformation that happens from a human dominated by Yetzarabah by evil inclination to a human of Alamabah, where the soul is in control, where the paradigm is entirely the opposite, where the body and soul are no longer a body dominant and soul is uh, being controlled by the body, rather, it's the opposite. How does that change happen? It happens via this whole process of transforma- transformative faith, from anochi all the way to Thou shalt not covet. You know who didn't covet? Moses didn't covet. And by the way, I'm sure a lot of other great Jewish leaders. If you take the journey of Judaism from beginning to end, you'll end up with not coveting, and that'll be a normal mitzah. Indeed, for us, you know, we're beginners. We're beginners, we're trying to do the best we can and and therefore to us it's like, "Whoa! how how do you not covet? Well, What's that all about? And indeed it's very hard for us to imagine not desiring something. You can say, well don't do it, right? I I really want the cheeseburger, it's not kosher, so I won't do it. But how do I remove, kind of go a step back by changing the desires? I have to change from within. And indeed, I think that's another way to understand how we got all of Torah on Shavuot, because we got the Ten Commandments and within that is all the mitzvahs, either ten commandments or two commandments, or first and last really outline the bookends of the beginning and the end of our spiritual journey. Now, someone here mentioned something else, which I think is also very critical, um, and indeed, I think it's one of the it's one of the insights really that gets a little bit less attention during uh, the holiday, but indeed. Is one of the most critical aspects of Judaism. Now I mentioned it a little bit last week. I'll go into it again. Our religion is the only religion that makes a claim of national revelation. We're the only ones that do that. Now we could argue, we could debate the merits of the claim, but before debating the evidence, the accuracy, the questions, right? Before even debating the merits of the argument. What is the argument that we put forth? The argument that we put forth, as evidence, the Torah mentions it multiple times, is that we had a revelation where God appeared, not just to one man, not just to two men, 10 to 12, to 600,000 adult men between the age of 20 and 60. Safely, we can extrapolate that there would be a, a parallel amount of females. We're dealing with a nation at least of a million and a half people. We make that claim. No one else makes that claim. They don't
0: even claim it.
1: That's right. Not only that, the Torah itself, in the book of Deuteronomy, tells us that no nation will ever claim uh, this experience. No one else will even say that that they did it. Which, by the way, to me is checkmate to the Bible critics. Because if you want to entertain the notion of human authorship to the Torah, there's a paradox. On one hand, these people are exceedingly clever they managed to convince Jews of a fallacy. On the other hand, they made an obvious mistake which would have exposed their fallacy by saying that there was national revelation. Because remember, if we didn't have national revelation, then how would you be convinced that we did have it? It's not possible to do it. You cannot convince a nation of millions that they saw something they didn't see. Maybe one day you could. But by the way, even other nations, other religions that try to do that, they don't actually work. So for example, the, uh, the Mormons, the aforementioned Mormons. So they have uh, these golden plates, these golden tablets that allegedly were shown to Joseph Smith in the mountains of uh, upstate New York. But no one's seen them. But then he said, oh, there's witnesses that saw. But all those witnesses actually recanted their story. So you can't get three people to go with the claim of something that they didn't see. How are you going to get 300 people or 300,000 people or a million and a half people to claim that they saw something they didn't see? How are you going to do it? Why was this necessary? Why was, it, why was it necessary to have? So yes, it's pretty impressive on its own merit that we had Revelation at Sinai and no one else even claims to have it. That's to me, is enough checkmate for the Bible courage. But put that aside. Why would the Almighty need to have this? It seems like overkill, right? We had the Exodus, 10 plagues. We had the splitting of the sea. We had miracles left, right, and center. We had 40 years of manna, eating manna. By the way, how does that, how does that get explained? Really? Of eating manna falling from heaven? uh, uh, Sufficing the needs of millions of people over 40 years? There is such a phenomenon?
0: That's
1: a natural phenomenon. Natural phenomenon. I have, that's news to me. Mana falling, specifically where the people are traveling, right? It has to follow them around. (laughs) Everyone, I'm not familiar with that, but even if there is 40, 40 years feeding millions of people, that's not a natural phenomenon. But there's plenty of miracles to go around. Why do we have to have this otherworldly experience of people experiencing prophecy? Right? And obviously, like you guys told me, they couldn't handle it. They died, they had to be brought back to life, they experienced prophecy again, they died. This whole experience seems to be overkill. Shouldn't it be enough? We have miracles upon miracles. Ten plagues, splitting of the sea. There's enough miracles to go around. Why do we have to have revelation, prophecy, being uplifted temporarily to a different realm of living and not even be able to handle it and What's the reason for that? So Exodus 19, chapter 19, verse 9, which is right right before Mount Sinai experience, the Almighty tells Moshe as follows. And Hashem said to Moshe, Behold, I am coming to you in a dense cloud, in order that the nation hears when I speak to you, and also in you they will forever believe. The Ten Commandments solidified Moshe as an eternal prophet. The Jewish people believe in Moshe, not because of the miracles. The miracles were all, fun, fun, they were all functions. They were all utilitarianistic. Sorry, how does he say that word? Utilitarian. Utilitarian thank you. They, they had a utility to them. Right? The Jewish people are surrounded by enemies, split the sea. The Pharaoh will let us leave, beat him down until he relents. What are we going to eat in the desert? Manifolds. We're thirsty. Here's water from a rock. We're going to be surrounded by uh, bad climate and pests and heat. Okay, let's put a cloud above us, a fire at night. These are all, uh, what's the word again? Utilitarian? Thank you. Right. These all have a function. This, the only function of the Mount Sinai experience was to solidify Moshe as a prophet. The Jewish people experienced Moshe being talked to by God. They were privy, they had... A peak hole, so to speak, into Moshe's prophecy. Once the Jewish people experienced prophecy alongside Moshe, they never questioned his legitimacy as a prophet. They may have started up with his leadership, they may have questioned his tactics, but never again did they doubt that Moshe was speaking to them the word of God, that he was capable of communication, direct communication with God. Thus, in the ensuing 40 years, the Jewish people got the Torah. We got the Torah. Indeed, Mount Sinai was just the introduction. But Mount Sinai, the experience of Mount Sinai, solidified and concretized our understanding of Moshe as a prophet. Thus, 40 years later, in the plains of Moab, on the east bank of the Jordan River, when Moshe Moshe's given us mitzvah after mitzvah after mitzvah after mitzvah, that is Torah. Torah as in instruction from God. Moshe is now speaking to us the Word of God. We could believe that statement. The Yomani spoke to Moshe saying because we have evidence that Moshe is a real prophet. Thus, Torah demands, for for Torah to be Torah, there has to be prophecy. If, If there's no prophecy, then it's not the Word of God anymore. In order for Torah to have its value, its stature, its eternal meaning in our nation and indeed in the world history, it has to be the product of God. If it's Moshe, it's maybe good advice, but it's amendable. We could say, you know what? Moshe said this, it's not immutable. We could say, yeah, I, I disagree with him. I can't come and say I disagree with God. Thus, what separates Good ideas, a good analogy, a good thought, a good instruction, a good law from Torah. Torah is a book of laws, yes, but laws does not necessarily equal Torah. The difference is, is that this comes from God. Torah comes from God. Well, how do we know it comes from God? Moshe told it to us. Moshe gave us these books. Moshe gave us these instruction, the oral Torah, the written Torah. It's from Moshe. Moshe is a conduit of God, and we all know that because we experience prophecy alongside him. But this really gets to what Torah is. People have a misunderstanding of what Torah is. People think that Torah should be beholden to what we want. If we, we have to find a way to make Torah conform with what we want. It's the opposite. We have to find a way to conform with Torah We have to try to make ourselves compatible with God, not to make God compatible with us. Because you know what? Then it's not God. Then it's what I want. It's Wolbyism. Join my religion. Well, maybe, maybe I can get some followers in my religion. But that's not Torah. Torah is we follow the word of God, even if we don't agree with it, or even if we don't understand it. That's why we're deliberately told there's mitzvahs you don't understand. Get used to doing what God wants. Because when you do a mitzvah that doesn't make any sense to you, right, you are acknowledging that this is Torah. This is not something that I'm doing because I want to do it. You know, the, 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 me doing a mitzvah and saying, well, I would have done this anyhow, Like okay, I'm not fulfilling Torah. I'm doing what I would have done anyhow. To do Torah means it's to acknowledge the fact that the Almighty loves us and cares for us and wants to have a, us to have a fantastic life and gave us the method to do it. It's from God. And thus there are things that I'm not going to understand. And some of them are done deliberately. We're deliberately given mitzvahs that we cannot possibly understand because that makes the idea of Torah penetrate into our hearts. It's from God. And thus it doesn't mean that I should understand. There's some things that I will not understand. And that's by design. And then there will be other things that maybe I understood 50 years ago. But, you know, Rabbi, you know, society changed. It's no longer acceptable to say this. Or, uh, we have evolved as a society. Okay, but God doesn't care about us. He does care. God cares about us. God loves us. But Torah, if you accept Torah as what it is, it cannot change. It's immutable. We cannot take a scalpel and cut out some verses of the Torah. We can't. So we don't understand it, we can have the humility to say we don't understand it. So society changed, we can have the humility to say society changed.
0: There never was a rebellious yeah. and stubborn son, sorry I said it wrong. So they did
1: change it. They didn't change it. If there you would have been a, there were. It was there,
0: always that way.
1: Well, no. <laughs> uh, you, you misunderstood the Talmud. The Talmud says that this. There's so many qualifications for rebellious, for a wayward rebellious son that no one actually fulfilled the qualifications. But then changed the Torah. They didn't say this rule doesn't apply anymore. The rule applies. But because they are draconian. Uh, circumstances that need to be met for this law to be fulfilled. No one actually fulfilled the consequences, the, the circumstances. But they're not changing the Torah. We're not allowed to change the Torah. Go
0: ahead. But can you take certain things from the Torah that makes you feel good or apply to you? Like, not change the word of Torah, but instead of using. These, so you want to emphasize that? Example. Or,
1: Okay, so I, I, I want to give you two examples. You know
0: what I'm talking about. I
1: don't know what you're talking about. I'll give you two examples. Well, you probably
0: know what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: like this. So, so this is... Okay, so there's, there's two ways of doing what you said. And, the, and, and it's a little... It's, there's a slight difference between these two ways. And one of them is fantastic. And one of them is, is absolutely devastating. And I'll explain to you what the fantastic one first. So I like to pray. It's my communion with God. I'm in isolation, just me and the Almighty. Well, prayer is part of the Torah. I want to make a heavy emphasis on prayer. You know what I just did? I changed the world for the positive. Right? I channeled my, you know, my, my energies into something that's going to bring me closer to God. That's number one. That's a great mitzvah. And by the way, you know who did that? Fantastically well. Same example that I give. Hasidism. Hasidism is about highlighting and emphasizing the parts of Jewish life that the people of, of, of Eastern Europe and Russia, that they needed. They, you know, they, 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 it was emphasized, but it doesn't mean that they took the other parts of the Torah and said, that's not Torah. Right? That's the flip side of this. If there's a tremendous danger to say, well... I feel connected to this mitzvah. So I'm going to do this mitzvah. But the other mitzvah, I'm going to throw away. I don't feel connected to it. By doing that, you are taking Torah and demoting it from Torah. Because if it's Torah, it's from God. So all of it's valuable. All of it is from God. All of it's Torah. If I say, well, I want to do this one and not that one to the exclusion of that one, well, then even what I'm doing is not Torah. Because I obviously don't believe that it's Torah it's from God, because if I did, then all of it has to be taken together. So that, that's the danger. People say, well, I, I love this mitzvah, so I want to do this mitzvah. Great. Right? Emphasize that. Make your spiritual world built off one part of Torah. Every part of Torah, like I said earlier, every element of Torah can build for you, on its own, an entire spiritual world. But if you say, I'm going to do this, to the exclusion of something else, because this is what I like, not only is that a bad idea, but it's actually changing the Torah, even in what I'm doing. Because even when I'm doing I'm saying, this is obviously not Torah. I'm doing it, I would have done this anyhow, even if, it wasn't, even if it wasn't from God. It's a nice thing that I want to do, but it's not Torah. Because if it's from Torah, well, then it's all valuable. Now, that being said, I think it's better for someone to say, "I am holding. I'm ready to fulfill this mitzvah. I'm not quite ready to fulfill that mitzvah. I don't know if it's whatever. I'm saying that is a better alternative than saying this one is not for me. If it's from God, it's for it's it's for you. You have a harder time. Everyone has a hard time with certain mitzvahs and easier time with other mitzvahs." But that's not
0: what I'm talking about. Okay, okay. I go ahead. P C politically correct exactly. Now, Hashem is not the king, is not the Lord. If they change all that in the prayer books, that now everything is a neutral gender, okay? They take one of the major prayers in Kol Nidre, okay? Or, uh, you know what I'm, which I, one? I
1: don't know what you're referring to, but yes. Go ahead, just say we're We're friends here.
0: Okay, the man laying with another man—that part of it—they take it completely. Uh, I say, okay, out. so that—that
1: that is okay,
0: and they and then they start changing the wording to make sure that is it,
2: inclusive
0: to everybody. That's what I'm trying to say. Is that kosher? Is that part of
1: Torah? That's you tell me. You tell me to say that I want to do this part of Torah, not that part of Torah, is changing what Torah means, right?
0: What do you do with, when, when that happens? I, mean,
1: you, I don't know. You fight back. You ask them and you well, say...
2: You know, I had a conversation with Rabbi Rosen and it boiled down to the end of my conversation after an hour and a half was God did not write the Torah. The words came out of his mouth. So once that came out of the top. There's no reason I, I uh, couldn't But that's well, uh. He, he, the he says, says that. that once that, he said yeah. that, my conversation was over. But I had, yeah. I, I had beaten him. No, he has to say that because if you you cannot say that he did and then say that this other stuff. That's right. So if you accept, so, right? So I, I had that conversation for an hour and a half, with him. So that's. And I've never conflicted with anything with him before except. That issue. Well, that's, that's, it. So that's wait. The If
1: so you accept what? that God wrote the Torah, then you have to accept it all. But and
2: the, but what if the apparently, they the didn't that's different. Had, sto- that's God a different story. The Torah. No, he said. He said that God, his conversation started with God did not know. I said, how can you say God didn't know something? Well, God, it was written by man. It was not written by God. And that's when he, that conversation ended with me. But I was, I was one of my big issues then. Yeah. Okay, but but, no but, issues, but but what but so what
1: happens? Bad. Let me ask you a different question. So what happens if it's written by man? Why yeah. are we doing any mitzvahs? Then you can pick
2: and choose whatever you want to do. Yeah. yeah. exactly. For a, for and right. let me ask you a different
1: question. Exactly. Okay, this might be a little harsh. I was
2: going to say why do you wear a yarmulke then? But I didn't want to go. there. Any yarmulke comes, I mean, any mitzvah. No, but he does. He still keeps kosher. I don't know yeah. about I don't even specific. That's I'm saying what what the idea. He you. But and pick and choose. You pick and choose. He was beaten, so it was
1: done. Let me ask you a question like this. But I'm saying there's another terrifying consequence of that right so yeah of course I think the first thing is that it changes our religion right if our religion is just the the good suggestions of a man well then okay everything is really on the table so we don't want to observe Shabbos on Shabbos it's too inconvenient let's move it to Sunday and by the way that happened that happened in the 19th century that actually happened because you tell me if it's, if it's the suggestion well maybe back in the day when it was written Saturday was a, was a convenient day to have Shabbos let's move it to Sunday what's the difference once we take it it's not from God then we can move it to any day that's convenient for us and you tell me how that's any different so that's number one our whole religion really collapses like a house of cards but tell me like this and this is a little it's a little bit it's a little bit sad to say but you tell me how this is inaccurate what happens to the What happens to the, uh, the martyrdom and the suffering of millions of Jews in history? They died and they suffered and they were persecuted and they were mistreated and they were marginalized in every way, only for one reason. Because they believed that the God that God gave us the Torah. And the Torah was real. And it's true and it's accurate and it's it's from God and it's worth giving up your life for. What happens when you say, no, you guys made a silly mistake. You gave up, millions of Jews gave up their lives for God, for Torah, but they were totally hoodwinked. It wasn't from God. It's from a man. It, it renders all the sacrifices of great Jewish heroes into mistakes. Millions of, of Jews now died in vain. They should have just dropped it. That was that that's that and that's a terrifying conclusion that I don't think anyone has intended, but that is the natural outgrowth of that conclusion. We have to say either the Torah is from God and thus our religion and our history has meaning, and our life today has meaning. A mitzvah has meaning because it's from God. Or it's not from God. Then all of our history is is it was just terrible mistakes, all of our sacrifices and contributions. In the form of dedication to Torah and to mitzvahs, all that is a waste. And today, we really should start from a clean slate. Because if it's the word, if it's the product of man who wrote it thousands of years ago, well, we, should, we, we really, everything's on the table, everything's negotiable. And that's, of course, a place that nowhere, want, nowhere wants to go. So we have to accept it, and with the acknowledgement that it's Torah, it's from God, it's directly from God, and thus, we, you know, we can't tamper with it. If the things that we don't understand, maybe that's the intention. Okay, everyone. So now we have, uh, indeed, we could see how we got Torah at Mount Sinai. We gave, four, I think, four answers to that question. To answer the question, what do we get on the holiday of Shavuos? How do we get Torah? Well, answer number one, simply, well, Ten Commandments are a denser version of all of Torah. A little bit more sophisticated is that the first two of the Ten Commandments, we, the ones we got from God, contain everything. And that's why we have to hear it from God, because we have to hear all of Torah from God. To take that idea a step further, it's not just the mitzvahs, it's the intention of the mitzvahs. It's changing our assumptions about life. It's creating a world of faith wherein it's possible to tell someone, "Lo Do not covet, don't even feel like you have a desire for something that's not yours. That is indeed the culmination of a life of Judaism. And lastly, we got Torah. Because what is Torah? What separates Torah from a book of good, good instructions? What's the difference between Torah and how to win friends and influence people? Both of them is good advice, right? Why is one Torah and one is a book? It's a nice book to have. The difference is, is that we believe that the Torah is divine from God because of Shavuos. Because of the experience of Mount Sinai. Because we heard, we experienced prophecy alongside Moses thus everything that Moses gives us we know comes from God we have Torah but having Torah has consequences it means we can't just pick and choose which ones we want it's immutable it means we'll do things and we'll, we'll, we're working with, on God's way of thinking so there are things that are not going to make sense, sense to us but we have to take the entire package we cannot say and take a scalpel and cut out parts of it because we do that everything collapses it's not Torah once it's not Torah everything's on the cutting board Everything that we don't like, everything's inconvenient. Okay, well, let's let's do away with it. Shabbos is inconvenient. Move it to Tuesday, right? Why? You tell me what. What's the difference? Right.
0: It's. That was part of my conversation with him. Was hey,
2: I, I you know, because part of the problem with conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism is it does start drawing a gray line as to what you do and don't do. However, I said, when has you have we ever done anything that's contrary? to the Torah, where, hey, we may not agree not to keep kosher, keep kosher, but this is like having a bacon cheeseburger on the pole. You, you know, you're going, you're saying, But, hey, but you have
1: told me, what, the, what is the difference between eating the bacon cheeseburger on Yom Kippur and getting rid of any word, to, what's the difference?
2: Well, the deal is, the, the deal is that <laughs> from a conservative Judaism point of view is the establishment condoning eating a bacon cheeseburger on, on Yom Kippur, which they never would have done before. Because they say, hey, the Torah says you shouldn't eat bacon cheeseburgers. Hey, we're willing to look the other way if you do. However, we're kosher, bet Okay, now they're saying, hey, we're kosher, bet but you know what, in case you want to have a bacon cheeseburger, go ahead and bring it on the pulpit. Not even in the back room, on the pulpit. So that was a big... So that's... uh, That was um, a major mind shift there.
0: So I don't understand.
2: But that's... They they went the opposite of what the Torah said. It's one thing to say, hey... We're going to let people be members and whatever. Hey, we'll do it outside the synagogue. Hey, whatever. It's not to say, hey, we're going to not only condone it, we're going to do it right in front of the Aram Kodesh for good, right in front of, we're going to do a oh, smack right. of God's face. Oh. So, that, so,
1: that, so that is. Uh, it hurts,
2: that's where it's, 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 I mean, it's it hurts the opposite. It's the like
0: movement. Say, I had to say that, but it, it's hurting the movement. I forget about the movement. It's, it's the Jewish the, people. The, forget it, about the movement. Hurts, like I'm sorry, it hurts the Jewish people because the leaders are the ones doing it. Not us. Is the leaders. I mean, all of a
2: sudden. Well, listen. I came to the conclusion there was a third of the people that were for it, a third of the people against it, and a third of the people just didn't know. give a and, shit. And okay, I'm not so you didn't even so know. therefore, people that didn't give a shit. It wasn't like seventy-five percent was against it. Okay, they didn't care. So what happens is there's just a small group that was actually willing to speak up against it, and they pass it through.
1: Either way, uh, let us. You know, no, let us uh, celebrate our holiday of Shavuos, our receiving of the Torah, to have a little bit more of an understanding of what we actually got and what the experience was like. I would encourage everyone to go read uh, Exodus chapter 20, where the story is told, but also read when it's retold. Remember, not many stories in the Torah are told twice. When it's told twice, there's a reason why it's yeah. told twice. Read in Deuteronomy I think it's chapter 4, uh, read it because it's, it's fascinating. How the detail, of the description. We sometimes go to the movie instead of reading the book. Uh, read, just read, 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 read the narrative. The, which one with is, with which we, with Rashi, even it'd be even better. What we experienced. What what were the Ten Commandments? Exodus, Exodus, I think it's Exodus twenty and 20. and, uh, and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter four, two. four. Oh, four. four? Mm-hmm. Find it, it and uh, and let's see if we could relive the experience and have uh, a little bit of a feeling of what that was like. All the best, have a happy holiday, and I'll see y'all next week.